This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. Today, Leo Pulovitz is back on the program for, I believe, the third time. Uh, Leo is, of course, co-founder and general partner at Susa Ventures, which invests in early stage companies with strong compounding moats, such as proprietary data, economies of scale, and or network effects. In today's interview, we discuss the evolution of Susa over the past few years, what worked and what didn't in their recent Fund 3 capital raise, what he would have done differently if he could go back to Fund 1, why a singular focus on ARR is the wrong way to raise a Series A. We discuss the key ways to de-risk a startup and look more attractive to investors. We chat about founders that operate as investors or scouts for VC firms, and if that's an appropriate use of time. And finally, Leo talks about his personal evolution as an investor. Here's the interview with one who I consider to be one of the best young minds in venture, Leo Pulovets. Leo Polovets is back on the program, joining us today from San Francisco. Leo is the co-founder and general partner at Susa Ventures. Susa is a San Francisco-based venture firm with investments in Andela, Flexport, Robinhood, Scalar, Steady, Outlier, Scope AR, and Expanse, among others. Prior to Susa, Leo was the second engineering hire at LinkedIn and also worked at Google and Factual before investing full-time. Leo, welcome back. Thanks, Nick. I'm really excited to be back. Yeah, can you so we've talked about your background. I think a lot of people are are familiar with you, but can you talk about maybe an update on your investments and also Susa uh, since we last chatted? Yeah, so I w- I was looking back to it. I think it's been almost 4 years since our last chat, so a lot of time <laughs> has passed since then. Although we've talked a lot off the podcast obviously. Right. But yeah, it's it's been a pretty eventful 4 years. I think when we last talked, we uh, Susa was just wrapping up our first fund. And since then, we've raised a couple more funds. We doubled the team. We actually had a new partner, Courtney, start just a couple of days ago. So that's been pretty exciting. We've made about 50 new investments in the last four years because we do about a dozen a year. You know, a lot of those companies are, you know, still growing, but becoming more and more uh, exciting and big and formidable over time. You know, like we a couple of years ago invested in Stored, which is a warehousing and distribution network in Atlanta, and like Newfront, which is a modern insurance brokerage in SF. And, a lot of other companies that we're really excited about, you know, as they've really started to take off. Excellent. Excellent. And how, how has the thesis evolved at SUSE over the past few years? Yeah. So when I first spoke with you, our thesis for our first fund was largely around companies that were using data as a competitive advantage. Yep. And when we started investing back in 2013, I felt like a pretty good thesis. My partners and I had all worked at companies where data was a pretty critical piece of them, you know, building a big moat around whatever their product was. 
Like for example, I worked at Google and at Google, the historical search result data was really useful for them building a better and better search engine. And I think it's what really kept them ahead for a long time. Yep. And so my partners and I really saw that dynamic and we thought that that was just a good bet to make in the future that more and more companies would use data as like a key differentiator and competitive advantage. And we bet largely behind that thesis for a few years. And then over time, what we realized was, you know, rather than just data as a competitive advantage, what we're really drawn to is just competitive advantages in general. And so it could be data, it could be network effects, it could be economies of scale or sometimes brand. But basically, we like things where whatever the company was building over time, like whether it's through data or network effects, the bigger the company gets, the harder it is for somebody else to catch up to. So we view that as a really critical piece of a company becoming huge over time and you know, being able to maintain its lead. And so that's the thing we really look for these days. How do you guys divvy up responsibility at the firm? I think you you mentioned that you just hired a new partner. I think you said her name is Courtney. You know, does she have a certain focus area or a certain set of functional activities that she does? How do you guys divvy that up and specialize within SUSE? I would say we're fairly generalist, actually. So both the firm itself is generalist. So we'll invest in almost every sector. Uh, so we've done hardware, we've done consumer, we've done enterprise, uh, done a little bit of frontier tech. And for the four partners, we each have certain areas we lean towards. So for example, I'm probably the most into B2B and enterprise investing. Courtney really likes, you know, what, what people often call like dusty or unsexy industries. You know, my partners, Chad and Seth, like they'll do more consumer marketplaces, frontier tech. But even for any single partner, even if they lean, let's say, towards frontier tech and consumer, like they'll still do some enterprise investments, some hardware investments. And so each of us does you know, a little bit of everything. And I think we, we feel pretty good about pretty much any partner can look at any startup and you know, have a decent opinion on it. And then you know, as, the pro- as the startup progresses through our process, uh, more and more partners start meeting with the founders. And, and in the end, we basically have four people with you know different perspectives and different interests, but you know all of us can give like a, an informed vote and uh, opinion on any given company. Is the entry point still seed? Yeah, we're we're very much seed focused. So I'd say you know usually we'll invest around a million dollars into rounds that are two to four, sometimes two to five million these days. You know the valuations are usually somewhere between like ten and you know high teens mm-hmm. most money. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And with the closing of, of the two new funds, SUSE 3 was a $90 million early stage fund. I believe you also did your first opportunity fund. Looked like the published commitment on that was $50 million. Can you talk about the elevator pitch to LPs and maybe what worked well in the first two funds that really resonated the LPs you were pitching? Pitching LPs is definitely an interesting process. I think in most situations when we're pitching, like whether it's a company or you know for a job, people really look at what have you done recently. But in venture, it's all about you know what did you do three or four or five years ago because <laughs> the feedback loops are so long. Yep. You know, and so it's kind of funny. I feel like I never look at a startup and say, oh, you know, you did a really great job four years ago, and so you know I'm going to give you a Series B term sheet today <laughs> because of what you did four years ago. It's really based on what you're doing now. But when we're pitching LPs, a lot of the pitch actually is about you know, here's what we promised to do in fund one, which was, you know, ended in 2016. And here's how that's going. And so I think in terms of the things that resonated, you know, LPs liked how our first fund was performing and how the first, uh, how the second fund was starting the track. We, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, we were seed investors in Robinhood and Flexport and Adela and a couple other companies that 
we've been really excited to see the progress and the impact they've had. And LPs were excited about that as well. They were also really excited that we were basically executing the plan that we set out when we first started SUSE. So even, even in the very first pitches we had back in 2013, we had this roadmap of here's how we see the funds growing over time. You know, here's how many investments we plan to make in each fund. Here are the check sizes and the target amounts. And we ended up being very close to that plan. So for example, like in fund two, you know, our plan when we started was that the fund would be 50 million. We would write 750K checks. I think the average check size ended up being something like 740K. So we're really close. Wow. And so, yeah, so, so LPs were, I think, happy to see that sort of, that kind of consistency and planning. And then I think the last part of the pitch that resonated with people was that we really view venture as a flywheel where our goal is, you know, we want to invest in good companies and great founders and help them along the way. And then those founders will introduce us to the next generation of great companies and, you know, hopefully provide like strong references and vouch for us as a good partner. And so this is kind of this flywheel where like we invest in good companies to help us get into more good companies and hopefully that gets stronger and stronger over time. And so part of our pitch was that we've done a pretty good job for, you know, a fund of our age, which is about six, seven years old of getting that flywheel spinning. And so we're definitely seeing that now we're like, you know, the founder of Flexport will introduce us to somebody else and help us get into that investment. And then a year or two later, that founder will help us get into another investment. And so we, we feel like, you know, the founders we work with and the founders we get to meet are stronger than ever. I'm really excited about that. Do you guys measure percentage of companies sourced via an existing portfolio company or an existing maybe founder relationship? We definitely look at this from time to time. So every year or so, we'll kind of look at where are our best deal sources, you know, where are we doing our investments from, you know, kind of what are the best uses of our time. And over time, referrals from founders have definitely become a bigger and bigger part of the, the composition of the startups we invest in. Yep. So when we started, basically almost all of our deal flow was from other investors. And then over time, you know, as the portfolio has grown, we've now invested in about 95 companies that are part of a SUSE family. And and these days, like we started fund three, you know, six months ago, I think we've done about nine investments since then. And I think four or five out of the nine were basically founder referrals. So we definitely have seen that increase a lot over time so that now almost half of the companies we invest in come through a founder we've worked with in the past. That's great. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, I think we just closed our sixth deal in Boston of all places, and that was not a strategic geographic target for us, but we did a deal or two there and the founders started recommending, you know, this small seed fund in Chicago to to their friends. And, you know, a couple of years later, we're on our sixth deal. So yeah, it, it does happen. The, the referrals are great. That's really cool. So, you know, you mentioned 90 plus portfolio companies. I'm curious how, how do you guys manage? I think there's three GPs at SUSE, plus you just added a partner, but how do you manage the body of work with all these different portfolio companies as they're, they're being added. I know that the natural goal is for that portfolio to cycle and people will graduate on to series A and series B and boards will change, but how do you manage the increasing amount of work as you make more and more commitments across a number of different funds? Yeah, this is definitely a question that's on our minds a lot just because Managing the fund at close to 100 companies is very different than when we had 50 or, or 15. What I've seen is, you know, as you mentioned, companies do graduate out over time. And that definitely helps because, you know, we're not necessarily working with 100 companies today. It might be 
actively working with something more like 40-ish. And so that ends up being about a dozen per partner, which is a lot more manageable. And what each of us typically does is we'll try to catch up with every company we work with, you know, roughly once a month or twice a month. And those are, you know, a little bit more structured where we'll talk about how the business is going. We'll talk about if there's any areas where the founder is struggling or wants help or maybe areas where we can proactively identify where we can help. But then outside of those, you know, calls or meetings, we'll also, we're available on email and text. And, and I think that stuff has ramped up over time, you know, because the kind of, the kind of conversations that come up uh, over text that's, you know, are more urgent, those will come up with seed founders, but they also come up with series A and series B founders sometimes where they just want to talk to somebody that's known them for a while, that knows where their company is at in the history and can advise them on some complicated situation. And so I think, it's still manageable, but it, it definitely takes up an increasing amount of our time, which is you know, part of the reason we're really excited to add a fourth partner in Courtney, because I think she, she brings in a great network that will help us you know, find a lot of great companies to invest in and work with. But I think also she definitely improves the team's bandwidth. And I think her perspective will also help us you know, level up some of our practices that were more efficient and effective as well. Leo, if you could go back in time and do things differently for fund one and fund two, what would you have done differently? What would you change? Well, I think the, the first thing is I wish we'd put the whole fund into Bitcoin in 2013. <laughs> <been very> <laughs> but, but kidding aside, I wish in our first fund that checks were a little bit bigger. And so specifically, we, we had a $25 million fund and we were targeting 250K checks. But the checks, they didn't start out at 250K, you know, at first, when we had only a piece of the fund raised and we were just starting out as venture capitalists and, you know, our confidence was not, you know, it was not at an all-time high quite yet just because we were getting started. Mm-hmm. We started out with smaller checks. So we started out with 50K, 100K, you know, over, you know, towards the middle of the fund, it was 250. And then by the end, we were sometimes doing 500. And some of our best investments like Robinhood and Flexport, it, it's hard not to think of like, well, what if we had just put in, you know, an extra 100K at the seed round? Because if we had done that, let's say Robinhood, it would be worth you know multiples of our fund right now. And so I wish we had done a little bit more upfront, especially you know in that first year or two before we had our full confidence. Because I think those you know slightly bigger investments at that stage would have been really meaningful now six or seven years later. Gotcha. Interesting. So I want to switch over to more of the the startup side of things. Uh, we've talked a bit about raising capital from LPs and, and your fund history. But you know, you've written a lot about founders raising capital and what it takes to to reach a Series A. And often founders, you know, have this singular focus on the vanity metrics. They assume if they hit, let's say, two million dollars of ARR, they're gonna attract an A round and it's gonna be at a, a great multiple from tier one investors. But you and I both have seen that it doesn't really play out quite this way. And the vanity metrics are not all that's required. Maybe we could just start out, Leah, why do you think a, you know, a singular focus on ARR is a poor approach to raising money? Yeah, I think a lot of this is actually sort of the fault of investors because a lot of times when they talk to founders and they, you know, they say something's too early, the easiest thing for them to say is, you know, hey, you're at 500k in revenue, come back when you have, you know, a million or 2 million. And I think that puts into founders' minds that those are the magic numbers to hit for a series A or for whatever the next round is they're shooting for. And instead, usually those numbers in the investor's mind are a proxy for something else. So for example, maybe they're worried that you can't 
hire a good executive team, or maybe they're worried that you can sell personally as a founder, but you haven't been able to train a salesperson to also sell, even though they're not a founder. And so when they say come back at a million and a half ARR, the number is not the thing they care about. What they're hoping for is that you can prove by then that you know you you can hire a good executive team or that you can train a salesperson to sell where they don't have to be a founder. But they use the number as a proxy and then people end up aiming for the number instead of figuring out what it's a proxy for. Right. There's a lot of underlying variables that contribute to you know, the, the end result, the, the <clears throat> lagging metrics. I talk to my team on a regular basis about how revenue is a, a lagging metrics. We should be, you know, focused on the fundamentals that are going to create the outcomes that we are looking for with the startup companies that we support. So, you know, knowing that you've developed your own framework here, it's, it's kind of focused on de-risking the major risk centers facing a startup. What are some of the high-level principles of this framework? Yeah, so I think de-risking is really key to startups in general, not just for fundraising, but for building a successful company in the long run. Mm-hmm. And and I think the the biggest principles in my mind are you want to think about, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to think about what are the key risks for your company. And in the early days, it might be around finding product market fit or getting your initial customers. You know, later on, it might be risks related to scaling from 10 people to 100 or from 100 to 10,000. But you want to list some of those key risks and you want to try to accurately self-assess yourself on each one. So, for example, if you're thinking about product market fit, you know, you want to think about, do you really have it? Do you have signs of it? You know, have you built products before that have reached product market fit? And the fewer of those questions that you can answer yes to, the more risk there is that maybe you're going to have a hard time finding it. And so once you once you figure out those risks... And once you assess yourself and figure out where the biggest gaps are, those are the things you really want to focus on in the short term. And I think that's really important because a lot of times, you know, let's say you're a really good product founder or a really good sales founder, a lot of times you'll focus on the thing you're good at, like product or sales. But in terms of both making the company successful and in terms of raising future rounds, what you really get more credit for is figuring out the things you're not good at. You know, so if you're an awesome salesperson and you can sign five customers before building anything, that's really awesome, but it doesn't really prove you can build anything. And so when you talk to a future investor, they're still going to ask like, well, you know, can you hire a good engineer or like, do you know how to design a good product? And so what you want to do is actually kind of put a little bit of a damper on the things that you know you can do and try to address the ones that you're not sure about. Yeah, I, I see this all the time. And I think, you know, some investors pass on investing for obvious reasons, right? And then other investors just say that they're not quite ready or, you know, pattern recognition suggests that, you know, this doesn't feel like it's a good fit, but maybe they can't identify the specifics. I like your your approach here because you you kind of deconstruct like all these different areas that make investors uncomfortable and, you know, prevent startups from excelling and proceeding on. And I'd, I'd love it if we could deep dive into one and maybe maybe you could walk us through an example. The different risk centers that, that you identified, you just mentioned product market fit. There's also product quality, team, recruiting, sales, market, funding, short-term competition, long-term competition. Leo, could you maybe pick one of those areas and walk us through an example? Sure. So let's take sales risk, for example. So 
one risk with a company is you're building a product and the question is, can you actually sell it? And part of that is, you know, can you get a good price for it? But part of it's also, you know, can you get in front of the right people? Can you convince them that this is a good product? Is your pitch good? And in terms of assessing yourself on this, you know, on kind of the spec, the risk spectrum for sales, you know, at the very bottom might be that you've never sold anything. You have no idea how to sell something. You don't know how to pitch your product. So then there's a lot of sales risk there. And then maybe a level higher would be you haven't sold anything, but you have some advisors that have and that can advise you. Or maybe even better is you have a co-founder who's really good at sales. And so those are sort of ways to level up on that side and take some of the risk out of the situation. And then as you keep going, it might be that, you know, if you're actually selling your product, that obviously risks it a lot. And then maybe the remaining part that's left is, you know, you as the founder can sell it. Can you teach someone else to sell it that you hire? And then once you can do that, I think that really de-risks sales so that now you have something that can scale pretty well because you don't have to close every sale. You can hire you know, two or three or 30 salespeople to do the selling for you. And so as you think about something like sales risk, you basically want to make an accurate self-assessment of how confident are you that you can sell the product. And then if it's slow, you want to do whatever you can to, to raise that confidence, which could be advisors, it could be investors, it could be consultants. It could be employees. It could be you know self self learning and reading, uh, but just whatever you can do to to decrease that risk in your mind that you can actually sell what you're building. I mean, this is like such an appropriate example because just recently, I think it was yesterday, I was emailing with a founder, and of course we invested pre seed, so it's it's very early, very early commercialization or pre commercialization. But this is like maybe the fifth time this has happened. I asked the founder for a view of their sales funnel, right? And I'm looking for something really simple, like who are the sales targets? What's the conversion percentage? What's the estimated MRR for each? This is not rocket science. It's just like kind of a high-level snapshot, which can help allow me to project out, you know, what's the conversion-adjusted revenue potential here over the next few months. And uh, there's so many founders that just don't even have it, Right. It's shocking to me. Some of them, you know, keep their key targets in their head and they're chase, chase, chasing. But it's it's amazing to me when somebody hasn't built even the funnel. And I think it's it's worrisome and in, indicative that you know this this may just be reliant on their ability and their skill and their you know them keeping track of everything as opposed to building a real sales muscle and a sales machine and you know training the team on that and projecting and forecasting when these these closes will happen and when the revenue will hit. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's a good example of exactly the kind of stuff that somebody will have to figure out in their first year or two. And so the longer they put it off, the more there's a risk that they're going to get in a situation where that becomes a real bottleneck to the company and you know maybe the company can't even get past it. And so it's great to figure that stuff out as early as often as possible because if you can't get past it, you know, maybe you decide to take a different approach to the business, or maybe you decide to shut the company down. And if you can get past it, that's great. And when you go fundraise, you'll get a lot more credit from investors and you'll get a higher valuation from them as well. I'm sure depending on the team that, that you're working with at SUSE, the startups that you're working with, the, the range of capabilities is, is probably different right? for each founding team. Some people are probably really strong on maybe the recruiting side, and some people are really strong on building product. What are some of the common mistakes that you've seen founding teams make with regards to 
kind of these risk areas that that we discussed? So I think a lot of the mistakes basically boil down to one principle, which is people want to work on the areas they're really good at and most comfortable at, and then they tend to avoid or neglect the areas that are hardest for them or that they don't really know much about. And the way that manifests itself is, for example, maybe you have a really good technical founder and they're great at building the product. And when a seed investor makes a bet on the founder and the company, usually the thing they really want to see is like, okay, I'm confident you could build a good product. Can you sell it? Or, you know, is it the right product? And a lot of times, like, you know, good founders will basically identify that quickly and they'll really focus on finding product market fit, you know, having a good sales co-founder or, you know, trying sales themselves, because those are the things that are really risky for the company at that stage. And then I think the founders that struggle, they will spend, you know, their whole seed runway building an amazing product. And then they come out and they basically approach Series A investors and they say, look, we have this awesome product ready for a Series A. And all of the Series A investors basically reply with, well, everyone knew you could build a great product. Like this product is great, but you didn't really prove anything new. And we're still worried about the sales. We're still worried about if it's the right product. Like we're not ready to invest at this stage. Right. A lot of times the company's out of money at that point. So it's a really tough situation. So I think the biggest mistake is, you know, only doing what you're good at and then neglecting the important things that you're not good at. So I think, I think spending time on those neglected things is really important. Yeah. Every time I see a venture capitalist write a blog post or share a tweet where they're saying founders should just focus on their strengths, it makes, it makes my skin crawl. Cause I, I feel like that, that can be good advice for role players, uh, you know, within an organization. But if you're going to try and lead a venture-backed startup, you can't just focus on your strengths. You, you actually have to address the weaknesses. You have to put yourself in uncomfortable situations, and you have to learn about all aspects of the business. And to your point, I think address risks in areas that might not be your expertise, but it's, it's required if you want to lead. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I think... A great product is amazing. And if you're great at building product, you should definitely, you know, emphasize that, make that one of your core advantages. But in the end, you still have to sell it. Right. And (laughs) on the flip side, if you're really good at sales, like that's awesome. But in the end, you still need a good product or, you know, like a good enough product. And so if you don't focus on that, you know, maybe you have a bunch of LOIs and contracts and commitments, but if you can't build the product, it's not going to matter. What about when you're working with early stage companies, you know, trying to balance testing things in the market, whether they be sales or, or marketing efforts or product capabilities, product features, product benefits. So the balance between testing and actual execution, right? You know, how do you think about how founders should balance figuring out what is the best path forward and then running fast in that direction? Yeah, I think this actually kind of connects to people focusing on the things they're comfortable with. A lot of times, I think, people will go all in on something way too early. And there's something, it could be hiring a specific candidate, you know, it could be picking a target market or a city to start in for, you know, a business that maybe goes city by city, or maybe it's, you know, picking a marketing channel. And a lot of times people, you know, for example, if you're doing a city by city business, maybe you just start in the city you're in, right? Or if you're picking a marketing channel, a lot of people think, well, you know, I have a lot of experience with SEO. So for this company, I'm going to use SEO. And I think it's a mistake to not 
explore a little bit first before going all in on something. And so I think there's sort of this good like explore exploit framework, which is you don't want to spend too much time on either of those things. So if you spend all your time exploring, and so maybe there's, you know, you're picking a marketing channel and you spend eight months trying, you know, 50 different channels for a couple of weeks, that's probably too much time on the exploring phase. But on the other hand, you know, if you are comfortable with SEO and so you just decide to go all in on that, there's a really big risk that maybe AdWords or maybe bulletin boards or direct mail or something else would have been a much better marketing tactic for you. And you never figured that out because you just went all in on the thing you know and you're comfortable with. And so I think it's really important to be pretty methodical in terms of, you know, again, whether you're hiring a candidate or picking a marketing channel or doing something else, you want to experiment a little bit and do a little bit of research and look at maybe the top five or 10 alternatives before you pick one to go all in on, you know, so like don't hire the first good candidate you meet, meet 10 or meet 30. And then once you've done that, you have a really good calibrated sense of what a great person looks like. And then, then you're ready to make a good hire. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee, and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group, or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. And what is that bar? So, I mean, you just gave us an HR example, but do you have a, a framework or do you have guidelines as to you know, when you decide, hey, we know what the direction is and now now we should just execute instead of being in sort of this exploratory testing mode? Yeah, I would say the bigger the decision, the more exploration you should do. You know, so let's say you're planning to spend, you know, $2,000 a month on marketing and you have a couple million in the bank. It probably matters a little bit less, you know, if you try 20 channels instead of five. But on the other hand, if you're planning to spend, you know, $50,000 a month and it's, you know, half of your budget or a third of your budget, you want to be really careful and make sure you make the best choice possible. I think there are other factors at play. Like, for example, how much better is the best choice versus the second best choice? You know, so if you're hiring an engineer, you know, the first candidate might be a lot better than the second best one. 
you know, for other decisions, maybe the difference is smaller. And so you don't need to look around as much. And I also say like the reversibility of a decision really matters. So if you hire an employee, that's a big decision. It's hard to undo it. It's very, you know, it's very messy for everyone involved. If you end up deciding you made a mistake. So I think you want to be more careful about something like that. On the other hand, you know, maybe there's some SaaS tool you're thinking about, you know, for managing marketing leads or something like that. There, maybe there's a low switching cost to try their tool. So you can just try a few quickly, pick one. And if in a few weeks you realize you made a mistake, you can just repeat the exercise and switch to another tool. And so I think there are a lot of these different factors like, you know, how reversible is the decision? How high impact is it? You know, how much variance is there in the quality of what you're choosing? And all of those will inform how much time you want to spend exploring versus going all in on something. Got it. Got it. You know, Leo, earlier we were discussing founders referring deal flow to us, right? So existing portfolio company founders or other founders in the network. Uh, I think we've increasingly been seeing that founders are working on deal flow and operating as scouts and making angel investments in early stage companies and startups. What's your stance on this? Do you think you know this is a distraction that should be avoided or do you think this is a net benefit to those involved? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people feel like it's a distraction. I think it's actually a pretty good thing to for founders to do and you know if they're interested in it. First of all, I think for many people, you know, they have some hobby that helps them de-stress or relax or that, you know, satisfies their curiosity. And, you know, maybe it's watching documentaries and maybe it's reading books or, you know, going to, you know, going to dancing competitions and and maybe it's talking to their founders. And I think, you know, I feel like who am I to tell anybody how to spend their time outside of work? I, I, I do think also that there's a lot of benefit to just meeting people, seeing what they're working on and sort of betting a little bit on serendipity where, you know, maybe you meet with 20 founders or 50 founders over the course of a year or two. And you talk to them about their businesses, maybe you give them some advice, maybe you angel invest a little bit if that's something you're interested in. And down the road, out of those 50 founders, maybe a few will end up being, you know, really valuable business connections, or, you know, they'll have advice on some issue you're having that you don't know how to solve, but they've solved previously. So I think there's a lot of value in just, you know, spending a few hours a week or a few hours a month doing things outside of your startup or your VC fund or whatever you're focused on. Because I think in a way it almost is like an immune system for, you know, for your future where you have more and more connections and resources in case specific challenges or opportunities come up. I like that. I like that. Do you have folks in in your portfolio that are active? I mean, without naming names, but active, you know, helping other founders, earlier stage founders, making angel investments, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. I would say out of the hundred or so companies we've invested in, probably 10 or 15 have founders that are angel investors. And, you know, I would say maybe five or eight of those founders are actually very active in terms of angel investing and mentoring and their companies are doing great. So I I think, you know, for what it's worth, like maybe the companies would be doing a little bit better or a little bit worse if they were wholly focused on, you know, not doing anything on the side. But I think in general, the companies are doing great. So it hasn't, doesn't seem to be a big impediment and I'm guessing it's more of an advantage than anything. So, you know, before we get to the wrap-up questions, Leo, you've been at this for a number of years now. In what ways have you changed the most as an investor versus the early days, aside from just, you know, cutting different size checks? So that's, that's definitely a big one. Um, 
I think, you know, so my background is I was an engineer for about 10 years and I've always been a very math and numbers driven guy. So it's taken me, you know, it took me a few years to not overvalue numbers as much. I think in the beginning, I approached venture a little bit like value investing, where, you know, I would look at one company with, you know, 500K in revenue, raising at a $10 million valuation, and another one with, you know, a million dollars in revenue raising at that valuation. And I would get really excited about the second one just because I would look at it and I'd say, oh, this is you know a much better deal in terms of like the valuation to the revenue. And I think over time, what I've seen is you know that's a very short-term analysis. And a lot of the, you know, what really matters is like, can this be a great company? You know, can this be a $500 million outcome or a billion dollar outcome or a $10 billion outcome? And for that, the near-term numbers don't matter as much. And it's taken me a few years to really let that sink in just because I am like a very numbers-driven, numbers-oriented investor. If you had to give one piece of advice to, to founders listening, what would that be? Ooh, that, that's a good question. I would say, you know, it's a really interesting time where I think for a founder, the fundraising environment's probably never been better. There are a lot of angel investors. There are more and more seed funds. Uh, there's just more sources of capital. And and as a result, what we've seen is a lot of kind of the hottest funding rounds end up going really quickly, where maybe it just takes a week or two from when the founder starts pitching to when they have the whole round decided. And I think given how much capital there is, you know, one piece I have for founders is to really spend a little bit of time to get to know investors and, you know, pick their partners carefully. There are a lot of great partners out there. There are a lot that are okay, and there's some that are not very good or bad. And I think when you do a whole fundraising round in a week or two and maybe meet a lot of investors once, maybe twice, you don't really have time to you know, reference them with other founders they worked with, you're taking on a big risk because you're going to work with these people for you know, two or five or maybe 15 years. And you know, picking a partner for 15 years based on one meeting, you know, if you get it right, that's amazing. But if you get it wrong, there's a lot of downside. And so I think it's important just to... you know. It's good to slow down a little bit and get to know people and make sure you're making the right choice. And is our founder reference checks, is that sort of the primary tool that founders should use to help make their decision? Yeah, I would say founder reference checks are a great tool. You can talk to a few founders that an investor has worked with, see what those founders' experience was like, you know, see if the investor actually delivered on the promises that they made to the founder or you know, if they were empty promises. I think another form of diligence is just to have you know, meaningful conversations with a potential investor about, you know, some challenge you're seeing or some opportunity you're seeing and, you know, seeing how that investor responds, right? Like, do they tell you what to do? Do they give you advice? Do they connect you to somebody? You know, are they, are they hard to talk to? Are they easy to talk to? Or, you know, I think there are a lot of these factors and for some of them, there's maybe a clear right answer in terms of what a good investor is like. And for some, for some aspects, you know, for example, how direct somebody is, where there's not a right answer, and you know maybe one founder prefers an investor that's you know more soft spoken and you know gives like gentle advice, and another founder prefers somebody that's like really direct and doesn't beat around the bush. And I think you want to get to know investors and try to figure out are they the kind of person you want to work with? Because again, you'll be working with them for years to come if things go well. Leo, what resource have you found to be particularly valuable that you would recommend to listeners? I think, well, first, I think Twitter is great. It's a great <laughs> chance to talk to other operators, talk to founders, you know, talk to investors. 
And you can actually have these like one-on-one conversations or ask them clarifying questions or get advice. So I think it's a really amazing resource if you invest time in it. In terms of books, I would say, you know, two that I really like. One that is more recent is uh, The High Growth Handbook by Eli Gill. I think there's just a lot of great operational advice about all kinds of aspects of building a company and, you know, across the different stages of building a company. And another book I really like is a book called Traction by Gabriel Weinberg and Justin Mares. And that maybe feeds into the de-risking conversation that we had and the fact that people sometimes go all in on the thing they're comfortable with. And Traction really talks about how to pick a good marketing and growth channel and how instead of picking the thing you're comfortable with or maybe the thing that seems to have worked for your competitors, it's more about you know a structured process for coming up with some good candidates for growth channels, coming up for good tasks for each channel, and then figuring out like which ones to go all in on. And so I found it really useful for you know, especially for founders that don't have any sales and marketing experience, I think it's a it's a great way to learn about how to approach that whole section of running a business, which is really critical. Love it. We actually had Gabriel on the program some time ago, but to to talk about traction, great recommendation. Awesome. Leo, what do you know you need to get better at? Well, I guess I actually am not sure how to get better at this, which is a little bit frustrating, but. As I mentioned earlier, I'm really numbers driven. And so I'm really good at analyzing data, you know, facts, numbers. I'm less good at assessing people. I think this is probably, you know, an artifact of me being an introverted engineer. And so I think that's something I can definitely get better at. The the crutch I've used that is actually very effective is having partners that are good at that has been a, a really great asset. Where, you know, when we when we talk about a company at the team level, my partners are really good at assessing the founders. I'm really good at looking at the numbers and, you know, each of us has different strengths and weaknesses, but combining, you know, four perspectives together makes a much better decision than if one of us was making the decision single-handedly. Love it. Love it. I was talking to Avidan Ross recently and I think he was, your name came up and I think he said, there is no problem that Leo can't solve. <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe assessing people, but I'm a big fan of Avidan. It's great. Uh, he's a believer. And then finally here, Leo, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter. So I'm L Polovets, uh, L-P-O-L-O-V-E-T-S. Also, my email is Leo at Sousa Ventures if anybody wants to email me to chat about anything. All right. Well, he's Leo Polovets of Sousa Ventures. Leo, thanks so much for the time. This was great fun and always appreciate your insight on early stage investing. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. It's always a pleasure to chat with you and be on the show. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. 